from the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, lessons learned through a medical crisis. Host Leif Anderson, NAE president, talks with John Stumbo, president of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Let's join in. I'm Leif Anderson, president of the NAE, here with John Stumbo. John has served as the president of the U.S. Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination since he was first elected to the position in 2013. But most of his 35 years of ministry have been as a pastor, including at Salem Alliance Church in Salem, Oregon. He has written three books, God in You, A Conversation, In the Midst, Treasures from the Dark, and An Honest Look at a Mysterious Journey. The last two of these books are about his experience at age 47 with a mysterious illness that left him bedridden for 77 days and unable to swallow for over a year. The lessons learned during that time are the focus of today's conversation. So thanks for joining us, and uh, thank you, John, for being willing to share. It's always good to connect with you in whatever way it is, Leith, so thank you. Well, let's just sort of start at the beginning. You were an avid runner, an outdoorsman, uh, living in the Pacific Northwest, enjoyed good health until you were 47, and then everything changed. So tell us what happened. Yes, I did love being in God's great creation, whether that was with a tennis racket or hiking boots or running shoes or fishing pole or in many kinds of ways. I found it great therapy as a local church pastor to just get to go outside sometimes and breathe God's good air. And in one week's time, I went from being able to run, you know, a 50 or 60 kilometer race to not being able to drive a car. Something rapidly was attacking my muscular system. At first, I just pretended it wasn't happening because I was a healthy guy, so I wasn't going to be concerned about a little oddity in my body. But uh, very soon, I would be hospitalized, and the doctors would start scratching their heads. And they didn't have an immediate diagnosis? No. They uh, ran every test they had in the building. I was eventually transferred to the ICU ward because I was going downhill rapidly and uh, into a comatose state, septic shock, system setting down. It moved from just being an irritating attack upon the muscles to being a full-fledged shutdown of the system. And they ran every test they had at the university hospital. I flunked them all, and they uh, said to me point blank, uh, you've stumped us all. We'll have to call it the Stumbo syndrome. There's really not a disease named after me, but it was their way of saying we, we know a couple other things you don't have, but we don't know what you do have. So I've occasionally experienced a run to the hospital in my life, but I've been there with other people. And often there's a sense that uh, you're in the midst of a crisis, but if you can get to the emergency room, if you can get to a doctor, <laughs> whatever it is, they know and they can fix it. If you can go to a world-class medical facility, the, the experts are there and they not only will figure it out quickly, but they will actually fix it pretty quickly. So what are they like? What are the, this sounds strange. What do they look like? What do they sound like when they don't have the answers and they know everybody's looking to them for the answers? You know, I love the fact that the medical team that served me were just plainly honest and said, 
if we knew what you had, we would tell you what we would do and how long your recovery would be. But we don't know what you have, so we don't really know what we're going to do or how long your recovery is. I loved the honesty. I loved the straightforwardness. And I didn't want them to make it up. <laughs> and they didn't. Now, at the same time, while they didn't uh, couldn't diagnose, they did, you know, there were things that kept me from dying there. Uh, after five days in a coma, um, uh, my f- waking thought, oh, as I have tubes in my mouth and can't speak and can't interact other than some hand gestures, and uh, my son interpreted my hand gestures, and he said, Dad, are you wondering if you're dying? And uh, the answer is, yes, you were, but uh, but we don't think you are anymore. Well, over the next weeks in that 77 days of hospitalization, there were numerous times that code blue was called or an intubation tube was run down my throat or a tracheotomy was given, the life-saving methods that doctors used to keep me going. So it's not, what I'm saying, Leith, it's not like they have to know what's ailing you to be of some help, and they were of great help to just keep me alive while they were still trying to figure out what was going on. Yeah, they were treating your your symptoms. Well, you are most gracious saying that you love their transparency and honesty, but uh, you're kind of scaring me and try to imagine myself or someone I love in a similar circumstance. And I, I wonder if I would just kind of give up on them. Did, did you, did you lose confidence in the, those physicians, but in modern medicine as well? Well, maybe my confidence wasn't as high going in. <laughs> I don't know. Um, we're, we're, uh, I, uh, one doctor said to me, God heals, I collect the cash. <laughs> uh, there, so there's a, kind of a vantage point to medicine that some Americans bring to the table that says, uh, if they can't fix it, I'm in trouble. And, but as Christ followers, I believe that we come with a different approach and if medicine can be of value great but my life is ultimately in God's hands and I don't mean to over spiritualize it we'll get later into the conversation about some of the real wrestlings of doubts that I had as the thing lingered on and on but in those early days of the most intense medical care I just kept uh, being fascinated that um, uh, they're not figuring this out but there's another story being written somehow so my early days were actually easier than some of the days we'll talk about in a moment. You know, you just reminded me of a conversation I had once with a fellow believer from a developing country. And I asked the question, so what's the difference between being a Christian there and being a Christian in America? And the answer was, um, in my country, this man said, we pray and then we go to the doctor. In your country, you go to the doctor and then you pray. And I don't know that really kind of ties in with what you're saying and had a profound influence. Anyway, I'm asking you the questions and you're supposed to have the answers. So this must have upended your world. You're a pastor. You're supposed to be there preaching. Um, how, how do you do that? What, what, what did life besides the hospital bed, what, what was it? Well, I was grateful we were had a church with a good staff and a solid leadership team and actually a preaching team. So I went on a commission in a very quick period of time from, you know, being lead pastor, leading, you know, everything that was mine to lead to being uh, now in the ICU ward and the recipient of, you know, visitors who weren't even allowed into my room. So I was completely incapacitated from leadership um, for, you know, months uh, completely. And uh, 
I don't know what guys do who haven't built a team around them. And I know not all churches are large enough to have a paid staff, but if there's nobody in your circle that if you go down, that it can pick up some of the mantle, um, you know, you're, you're vulnerable. There's a vulnerability there. So we just had the blessing of a very uh, strong team. And so they, they led the church. They prayed for me. And uh, then after the 77 days of hospitalization, now I'm no longer dying, but I've lost 50 pounds of muscle mass. I go from 190 to 140. I'm six foot one. I was skinny as a rail, unable to function by myself in any room of the house. My wife had to become my caregiver. And so I, I am incapable of leadership. I'm not, my voice is so weak and uh, profoundly uh, distorted by lack of muscle coordination, that I'm not very understandable. My thinking is not clear from uh, the deathbed, hallucinogenic medications, all sorts of stuff. And so uh, eventually I had to resign. Uh, I had to step down from the role because I did the math that as the months wore on, if I was on sabbatical for three months, no problem. If on sabbatical for six months, okay. But after longer than that, it's like, no, things just start going bad in a church when the lead guy is still the lead guy but not functioning as the lead guy. So I decided to relinquish the role. You use the word deathbed. In the midst of this, in those 77 days in the hospital, and even after that, when you were able to go home, did you think you were going to die? And if you did, what does that feel like? Well, there's a couple very memorable death, uh, edge of death moments. Um, one of them was marked by such a profound peace that I wept every time I talked about it for the next couple of years. Uh, I, people said, did, have asked me, did you see heaven? <laughs> no, I wish I did. It could have sold a million books, but, but I somehow felt the, the presence of a profound peace that uh, surpassed uh, anything that I'd ever known possible. So, and then another experience was uh, I was wide awake looking at a doctor and something had shifted in my lungs. They didn't know that my lungs had filled with fluids and I am literally not able to breathe. I'm looking at them wide-eyed and that was um, a bit frightful because it was physically uncomfortable, but it happened so fast. It, it uh, you know, it just... Um, God's grace is never given to us in advance, Leith. We, we don't get to know how we'll respond when we get to a certain moment. God's grace is only given to us at the moment. And again, I don't mean to over-spiritualize, but in those months of the hospitalization, there was just some fascinating... Uh, I was way more at peace than I should have been for the situation I was in. People around me were way more worried than I was. So you had lots of reasons to be discouraged, I think, at least in the circumstances that you were encountering. Were there particular sources of encouragement? Certainly the supernatural intervention of God was number one, but were there specific practical things, um, music or a book or a person or what? Where did encouragement come from to be able to go on through the day and into the next? Well, now we're talking about the post-hospitalization season, the months that followed when I'm home trying to recover. Um, in the hospital, there was I was not conscious a lot of the days, uh, you know that. But home now, now three, five, 
10 months into this story. At first, uh, frankly, I was too ill to even read more than two sentences. It was a big day when I could read more than a single verse. Uh, I went I went to the book of Job, oddly enough, to start with, and I didn't care at all what Job's friend said because I knew about the argumentation of the book. I just had to look from new eyes at how does a guy who's everything's been ripped from him, how does what questions is he asking, what is he processing? So I just read Job's words for a little while, and as the months were on, my capacity mentally increased enough that I could read more. I found, um, yes, we would hit repeat on certain songs uh, at night. My wife and I, as we were now in the grief mode of having lost health, lost position, lost so many things, uh, uh, enjoyment and pleasure and exercise. And we were in the, the grief stage and it's appropriate. Grief is the appropriate response to loss, but we were pretty low. And so, yeah, there were certain songs we just listened to over and over and over in the darkness of, of, of the night. Um, there were books given to me. Everybody wants to give you a book when you're, you know, they figure your way. You got a lot of time to read. Well, I did have time. I didn't have capacity, but gradually, as the capacity came, the unhelpful ones, frankly, were the ones that said, well, if you had enough faith, you wouldn't be sick in the first place. That didn't feel very encouraging. And the other end of the spectrum was, uh, well, you know, God's sovereign. He's in charge. You're sick. Deal with it. But in between, there was the wrestling with faith kinds of books, you know, that uh, D.A. Carson or a Johnny Erickson or a Phil Yancey or somebody like that would write that were the or some of the mystics of old that talked about the dark night of the soul from firsthand experience, um, those were the ones that made the most profound impact. The giving me permission to wrestle with God, Jacob style, when life just got really hard. Because it's one thing to you know work your way through the initial shock and trauma and horror of you know something big happened. You get everybody's attention, everybody's around, they're giving you condolence or whatever. But in those long months that some of us have had of being housebound in a wheelchair, on a feeding tube, unable to eat or drink, and unable to lead, and that's when stuff starts to go to the deeper level of where is God in all this? Some would say that theology of suffering is uh, underdeveloped in the American church and among American Christians. I, I'm not even sure how I would imagine you would answer this, but if you had a theology of suffering before all this and then after all of this, uh, how do they compare? <laughs> well, I love the question, and I uh, embarrassingly admit that as a pastor of 25 years at that point, or 20-some years, I really didn't have a theology of suffering. I was a American middle-class white guy that had things pretty easy and had come my way, and I hope I had some empathy for people in crisis, and we certainly did a lot of good things, you know, from our church for those in various life stages of crisis or pain, but I was more of an outsider looking in. And so, yes, passages of the Bible that I once uh, viewed as inspired scripture, but never really 
sank into my soul and suddenly began to find their way of nourishment and profound feeding of me that that um you know Isaiah 43 is kind of a classic where where God says you know I've I've summoned you by name you are mine I've redeemed you and the very next verse says when you pass through the waters I will be with you when when you pass through the rivers they will not sweep over you when when you walk through the fire you will not be burned they will not set you ablaze well well, we just look at it as, great, you know, uh, God's going to be with us. Well, look at him more closely. His summoning us by name, his redeeming us, is not a guarantee that we'll never have rivers and fires. We will have his protection in the midst of them. We'll have his presence. But we do go through deep waters and very difficult places as his children. And so it's not a pass from suffering it's uh strength to pass through the suffering as a deepened person i was speaking at a men's retreat in california a few years back and i gave this story and the guy in a wheelchair about my age rolled up to me only said one sentence and then rolled on and he simply said john don't you feel bad for people who've never suffered and i thought wow i i get it now i didn't then i would but there is there's a shaping and a deepening that comes, but that's all part of this theology of suffering, understanding the presence of God in the midst of very difficult times and and i yes, I had to wrestle through that and didn't come quickly to it i was I was angry for a while, part of grief uh, sometimes goes to anger, and you know one this very vivid example for me was. Um, six months into this journey, I'm at home, housebound, wheelchair, feeding tube, and my son's away at college, and I give him a call one day to see how he's doing, and after, we have a good relationship, and after 10 minutes, he says to me, Dad, I'm just going to have to hang up. I haven't understood a single word you've said, because my, again, my voice was so profoundly affected by the muscle attack, and I took my phone, and I beat it on my Bible that was sitting on my lap. And I said, I've been robbed, I've been robbed, I've been robbed, robbed of, and I had this long list, <laughs> robbed of enjoyment, robbed of communication, robbed of my employment, robbed, robbed, robbed. And um, that's actually one of the better moments <laughs> of starting to grapple with, okay, um, I've had something very difficult come what's the real storyline here? It wasn't a get well quick story. What's the storyline here? So I wonder if you always uh, hoped at least, if not assumed, that you would eventually get better and, and you did. But what encouragement do you give to those who suffer and and are told and realize they will probably never get better? Yeah, I uh, I had no hope. Um, the doctors, especially in regards to my swallow, so I was living on the feeding tube, zero capacity to get anything through my esophagus, my epiglottis, esophagus, all that had ceased to function. An ear, nose, throat doctor had uh, twice run a hose up my nose and gave me a guided tour, a place I never wanted to see. And he was all confident he was going to be able to help me. But when he gets to the back of the throat, he says, oh, John, what you have is inoperable in both senses of the word. There's no operation that can fix it, and it's completely non-operating. It's inoperable. 
And after that condition continues for a, a length of time, it, it, you become a no-hope case. And um, they don't always look you in the eye and say that to you, but by the fifth swallow therapist that passed me off and by no more appointments necessary with the ear, nose, throat doctor, you kind of get the hint that, um, yeah, there's there's nothing more on their list that they can do. And so I, I whether you're told it or not or just sense it or not, when you feel like you're in, oh, this is my new norm. This is the new place in which I live. Uh, you ask what words of encouragement can I give? Well, that doesn't sound like a word of encouragement, first of all, but grieving well enlarges the soul, and grief is the appropriate response to loss. And one thing that American Christians do poorly is grieve well. The man dies on Monday, we bury him on Thursday, and we expect the widow to be back singing in the choir on Sunday. It's just wrong. Grief is not a speed sport, and a lot of people don't get it, you know. So one answer I'd give is allowing your soul to grieve its loss, and that's why the second book that I wrote was published, because I was journaling during this time my own grief, and people have picked up this book called In the Midst because they've found that uh, here's somebody who doesn't know if the story will ever change, but he's wrestling with God in the midst of it. So that's one answer that I would give, leave grieving well, giving yourself permission to grieve. Second answer that I would give is stay in community. <laughs> Going to church was the single hardest thing for us uh, in uh, 2009, the year that of this darkness. And uh, uh, you know, I used to pastor the church. I used to lead the church. Now I don't even want to go. All these happy people singing happy songs, asking happy questions. How are you, pastor? Worse than last week. How are you? I just, I just didn't want to be there in the presence of all that. But uh, uh, the principle that we had to learn was when you need people the most, you're going to want to be with them the least. That Satan is trying to isolate and pull you aside and to just have you spin in your own orbit of negative thinking. And so uh, even if people don't know how to handle your uh, place of grief, to at least stay in community enough, because here's what happens, uh, you know, when your faith is down to a little thread, there's still somebody around you who's believing their, their faith is like a big rope and it's okay to hang on to somebody else's faith for a while when there's hardly any of your own to hang on to. And, but that's why we got to stay in community. And if we stay in long enough, the day's going to come when your faith is strong again and their faith is weak. So they're hanging on to your faith for a while. This is called the body of Christ. That's why the new of the New Testaments are all plural y'all use kind of thing that we're supposed to do this together. So that's the second challenge that I give for those that are in those don't know if it'll ever get better. The third answer is don't let the fact that you can't do what you once did keep you from doing what you can now do. I was so angry that, you know, friends of mine that I had helped learn how to do a marathon were now we're running, you know, fast and well, and I'm sitting in a wheelchair, and it's hard to rejoice with those who rejoice when you're in the morning stage yourself. But, but learning to accept that I got to give myself the uh, grace that, well, I can still do this. And so I'll celebrate any little accomplishments of 
physical achievement. I used to bench over 200 pounds with my son. They gave me a one-pound dumbbell. It looked like a dog biscuit as I got back into physical therapy. And part of me wanted to just chuck it and say, I'm I'm not, I'm just not going to do it. But, you know, another principle is we have a part in our own healing journey. And there's some things that others can do for, for us. We need to learn to receive help, accept help from others. But there's some things uh, that only God can do that we can't concoct or make happen. But everybody's got a part in their own healing journey. And so if we're not willing to do what we can in that, whether it's the irritating exercise of the therapist or having us do or whatever, um, we just have to be willing to accept that. So those are, I don't know, Alif, if I'm going where you're hoping where I go with that question, but those are some of the principles that I was learning at that time in the dark night of the soul. All wonderfully, really good, really helpful. Uh, we've talked about the church. We've talked about you. You also mentioned that your wife, Joanna, was uh, your primary caregiver. What, what did this do to her, and what does it do to your relationship together when you're home from the hospital and now she's doing daily caregiving? Well, at least it's a great question, and to add to it, I had been one of those faithful husbands who loved my wife, who had taken her very for granted. I had not honored her in a lot of ways, and so now this woman that I have just kind of appreciated but not celebrated, sadly, uh, I've been faithful to but have not honored, as uh, Peter instructs us. Uh, now she's on hands and knees taking off my socks and shoes, and she's helping me in the bathroom and every place of the house because I am incapable of taking care of myself for a season as we're now home together figuring out our life. And so to see this woman, uh, she'll, she'll, if she were on the phone, she'd say, you know, her own failures in, in this, but no, she, she rose to that moment and became my caregiver. And I have to say to somebody listening to this podcast, blessed are the caregivers for in you, excuse me, for in you, we have seen the Christ the um, compassion of our Lord that he expressed through his ministry, something deep within his soul that would arise at certain moments, and Jesus wept at the grave, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, those, um, that compassion, that care uh, is often expressed through caregiving individuals. Some of it is volunteer, like my wife, never paid a dime for it, but there's listeners who've given up hours or decades of their life to give somebody else a better quality of life than they could have had on their own. And that caregiver is often overlooked and rarely thanked because grief and gratitude are rarely easily combined in the human soul. And when the sufferer is in grief, the gratitude rarely comes out of their, their voice or eyes or system. And so um, I just have to say to somebody listening, blessed are you. You have helped us have a better quality of life than we would have had in our own. And complicating that for Joanna was the fact that I had, you know, taken her for granted in a lot of ways. Well, this was God's school of marriage for us that for that 18 months where we were knitted together and I was unemployed and all that, uh, that was our marriage rebuilding kit that God gave to us 
we didn't, it was just a sweet thing. I would not, we would not be ready for the role that we're in right now as president of this organization with all of its broad responsibility had our marriage not had that season of, of reshaping and refinement. When you and I have had one-on-one -on -one conversations about your uh, journey, um, one of the most memorable moments I've heard you tell to me and now to others was when you were again able to swallow. Um, it's just so memorable. I want to tell your story, so I won't do that. Talk about when that happened. Sure. So we're 18 months now into this journey. I've uh, not eaten a bite of food, drank a drop of water. Not that I haven't tried, but when your esophagus doesn't work, it just goes on into your lungs, and the doctors consider it bad, you know, medical practice when you suck, you know, Wendy's frosting into your lungs, and so that. So I, I was completely incapable of any. Uh, in, uh, so living on the feeding tube, uh, seven cans a day of this medical food. And uh, but after a year and a half, I had gained through therapy, through some uh, medication kind of stuff that doctors were trying. I had regained enough uh, strength in my legs and arms to be able to drive a car again, which was a great gift. A whole year of Joanna, me and my chauffeur, she doesn't like to drive. I don't like to be driven. That was a challenge. But uh, so I'm driving again, and our son's graduating from college that I referenced earlier, and we decided to take a road trip and drive from Oregon to Minnesota by way of Tennessee and make a real road trip out of it and thank people along the way who had prayed for us and blessed us. We packed 200 cans of the medical food in the back of the car so I'd have something to live on for that month of, of, of the road trip. And we headed off and we got halfway across the country and my feeding tube stopped working. My only source of medication uh, nutrition, hydration. Well, the only way I got anything into my body was through that tube, and now it too was non-functioning, and I was in trouble. And there's uh, plenty more to the story that I don't have time to tell at this moment that's in that uh, book called An Honest Look at a Mysterious Journey, but uh, the bottom line is uh, we were at our lowest point, 18 minutes, no hope from the medical community, and now my tube's not working. And so we prayed probably the weakest prayer we've ever prayed. Really? <laughs> and then started to drive off. Why don't you go to a doctor? Why don't you? I don't know what doctor to go to. I don't live in this city. I'm not from around here. And I just need a time to pray and think. And, and uh, so we headed off. I'm, I look over and Joanna is weeping like Hannah in the Old Testament, crying while she prays silently. And I'm just trying to figure this out and what do I do next and talking to God about it. And when uh, she reaches over and touches me on the throat as she has many, many times before, and entire you know elder groups and churches have prayed for me in the past. We had received plenty of prayer. But, but at this moment, as she reached over and prayed on that day of our greatest darkness and touched my throat and prayed in the name of Jesus, I felt a twitch or a twinge. It wasn't a jolt. It wasn't something huge, but I had felt life. I felt movement where I hadn't felt anything for a year and a half. And I thought, could it be that on the day of our greatest crisis, could it be after a year and a half of seemingly unanswered prayer, could it be that today God would heal me? 
And at that moment, I did something the doctors were like, no, you idiot, not liquids. Because if you try something and you're not able to swallow, you do something thick like mashed potatoes so you can spit it out of your lungs. But I took a sip of orange juice and felt it go all the way down for the first time. And a little burp came all the way back up. Life was returning to the system. We, well, we pulled over and and threw away the spit cup that we'd been traveling with because I had to live spitting into cups and towels and and uh, and napkins or whatever because I couldn't even swallow my own saliva. And so threw away the spit cup, and then I started to eat some yogurt that we had with us. And I could see plastic after a few miles at the bottom of that yogurt cup. I just couldn't believe it and that I had eaten yogurt. and stop for a Wendy's Frosty since that had been a negative thing that I had tried to eat early on and had just sucked it into my lungs and now I could drink a whole Wendy's Frosty and then it was a bowl of chili and woke up the next morning without a single spit rag or spit towel because I always had to live uh, in the night with spit rags and all that and so news got back to Salem that Stumbo's eating and that ear nose throat doctor and the, and the, and the swallow therapist said who gave him permission to eat because <laughs> uh, they knew I was going to kill myself doing that but so but by the time I got back there you following this road trip I saw 20 more days I gained 15 pounds I'd never gained a pound on that medical food but I gained 15 pounds eating real food and and so you know that was so uh, No, God doesn't write any story twice, you know, and God didn't heal everything at that time. I still struggle with some of the ramifications of that muscular attack. Ten years later, I still have issues, but I'm the happiest eater on the planet (laughs) and uh, have regained all my weight and strength and and all that. So, So John, let me ask you a last question. Often when people go through trauma, they have uh, apparently different responses there are some who live in constant fear that tomorrow is going to be a return to yesterday. And then there are others who have this whole new lease on life, this new chapter, a new beginning. Um, you know, I, I guess it depends on everybody, but you know, what, what about you? What's, what's different now than it was before? I've begun to see the show me, O Lord, my life's end. Let me know the number of my days kind of psalms as beautiful things. An awareness of our own mortality is actually a good thing if you believe in heaven and the eternal. If I wasn't a Jesus follower, I'd be so melancholy. I don't think I could get out of bed. But but, uh, so um, the sense of my own mortality has given me a sense of urgency about sharing love and saying the words that I need to say and embracing every moment and leading. And and, because I did kind of have uh, hey, I'm young. I got a lot of life to live. A passivity about me that I missed some key opportunities earlier in life, and so a healthy sense of urgency uh, to, that that has come from this sense of mortality. Uh, the the deepening walk with God that was formed through the dark night of the soul. Um, is is a is a healthy thing. I mean, I still have doubts and questions and confusion on answer prayers and all that. But I think it gave me a, a, a permission to to ask uh, to go to go harder places with God and and to uh, enrich that relationship. Um, I don't. I, I know that in the back of my mind, there's always well, I was healthy from every human sense of the word, the day that the attack hit, what's keeping me from thinking that at any moment it couldn't, you know, hit again? Well, it could, 
But, you know, God kept me alive through the first one, and His grace was sufficient for the first one, and I never want to have to go back and do all that again. But um, I, I just, I guess I take more one day at a time than I used to, and value each day as it is. It sounds kind of corny, I suppose, but I think it's real. Our guest on today's conversation has been John Stumbo, president of the Christian Missionary Alliance. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to you, John. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.